We are certainly not the type of people that would tell you to wrap your child up in cotton wool and never let them have a beautiful childhood. But in terms of approaching risk, we want people to change their mindset so they're not just thinking that those accidents are unlucky and not avoidable because these accidents that we see on a daily basis in the intensive care unit actually are preventable and are avoidable. Kirsten here with you on Ducks on the Pond, and this is a special short series that we're bringing to you in collaboration with Peds Education. Jackie and I will be back with our regular series in February, but for now, it's just me, but I'll soon introduce you to our fabulous guests, a couple of paediatric nurses and rural mums, Sarah Duncanson and Grace Larson. So for this mini series, we're taking a practical look at child farm safety. And we're going to break it down into age groups. So for this episode, it's mainly about babies and toddlers. I feel really privileged to bring you this series. It's three-part series with Peds. And that's because this conversation is very honest. You know, whether you're a rural mum, a grandmother, an aunt, you know, it's not about saying that the kids can never be on the farm. That's just not realistic. And it's certainly never about blame. This is all about arming ourselves with information. So we understand the risks, make better decisions, and know what to do if something bad actually does happen. The rate of fatal injuries amongst our regional and remote kids is three times higher than children who live in metro areas. So what can we do about it? Well, there's more than you think. Grace and Sarah give some really useful advice on what to do in the case of some of the most common farm accidents. They even developed a triage of safety because they're such nurses, aren't they? But seriously, it's a useful tool for risk assessment. We'll also hear from a young mother whose two-year-old boy, Hunter, drowned in a dam on a rural property just outside of Shepparton, Victoria, in 2020. He he just wasn't able to be stabilised. You know, like the doctors and nurses, I will never forget how hard they worked on him. They They would not stop and they would not give up until the very, very end. And before we continue, I'd like to give you the numbers for Lifeline, 13 11 44, and Beyond Blue, 1300 22 46 36. So let's meet Grace and Sarah, who have plenty of farm experience, have cared for children involved in farm accidents as nurses, and have now created Peds Education, which runs training courses in child first aid. Here's Grace Larson. So I'm a very proud rural mum. I grew up on regional and rural properties myself as a child, really loved the lifestyle that that had, you know, the freedom of being in open spaces and being able to ride horses. So I was really keen, even though like I've lived in metropolitan Melbourne for most of my career, then when I became a mum to get back out into rural spaces. But, you know, in doing that, I haven't really wanted to let go of my career and, you know, what I've spent the majority of my life doing, which is working around children and working with children and trying to improve their health outcomes. Sarah, can you tell me about yourself and your connection to rural Australia? Yeah, absolutely. So I grew up in regional Victoria, not on a farm personally, but grew up around farms with grandparents and extended family having large farms around regional and rural Victoria. Uh, So spent a lot of my childhood out on property and like Grace moved to the city working at a large tertiary hospital in the same unit as Grace, which is where we met and spent a lot of our careers together in the paediatric intensive care unit. When I became a mum also, I moved out to 
to rural properties. So we live in regional Victoria and I have four beautiful children under the age of seven. Uh, so it's our intertwining of our roles as mothers, nurses, and now mothers on farms that bring us to this sort of education that we really want to empower families out there with the knowledge and the skills to care for their little ones. And I don't know, I can't obviously speak exactly for Sarah, but obviously we're on a similar journey at that point around, you know, prevention rather than reacting to things once they've happened. We're actually trying to stop them from happening in the first place. We actually were teaching out in the community, teaching in emergency departments, teaching nurses and doctors around pediatric advanced life support. And a lot of those health professionals were asking us more information regarding deterioration of children. And so I think we sort of arrived at the conclusion at the same time, didn't we, Sarah, where we're like, there's a need for this information beyond our hospital. And at that time, we both were living rurally. So that's probably where the seed was planted, you know, within healthcare. But then COVID, because of what was happening, you know, children weren't able to get into the doctors. There were like massive delays waiting for ambulances. And I think it just became this natural sort of extension on that to go, all right, well, how do we take this now another step further? How do we help empower parents and carers in the community so that they're not feeling so helpless and vulnerable? Yeah. We did an episode about farm safety and there is a constant battle, I think, with farming about not wanting to lose the freedoms of farming and the joy of farming and involving your family. People don't want it to become an environment where there's like OH&S manuals everywhere. What's your approach to child farm safety with that in mind? That's such a good question. As parents who live on farms, we are all about in having that enriched childhood that involves living on the farm and enjoying all that that entails. And we are certainly not the type of people that would tell you to wrap your child up in cotton wool and never let them have a beautiful childhood, whether that is on a farm or not on a farm. There is this natural risk that comes with living in a workplace environment. We also know that children have limited capacity to protect themselves and keep themselves safe. And that comes from their physical size, their cognitive impairment as a child, as well as the inherent risks that come with a farm life. So there are natural risks that are involved with living on a farm. And there is a, a really great way that we can approach this, which is something that we've developed called the triage of safety. And I'm going to get Grace to talk a little bit more about that because she is the one who actually came up with the concept and so is super passionate. But in terms of approaching risk, we want people to change their mindsets. So they're not just thinking that those accidents are unlucky and not avoidable. So if I talk a little bit about the triage for safety, if you think about, you, you know, you're saying you don't want to like overload people with OH and S manuals, but the triage for safety is a really super easy tool that we've developed that is basically something that you can do anytime you're thinking about involving your child in a new activity or anytime you even just go to a new environment that you haven't been to before. And we really reflected on what do we do as mothers with our background and knowledge to ensure that our children remain safe you know, on the farm. And we do three things. So basically the first thing we do is pinpoint. So 
whenever we go to engage in a new activity or whenever we're thinking about a new environment, the first thing we sort of do by scanning the environment is just to sort of think and ask, you know, what are the risks involved in this activity? So if we think of an example, perhaps one of your children thinks that they might be ready to go and assist with the milking. So the things that we need to ask are what are the risks that are involved with my 10-year-old child coming and assisting me with the milking? Well, they could get kicked, they could fall over, they could slip over, you know, going through all those potential risks and then really reflecting like, is this worth the risk? Are they ready to take on that risk and manage it? And if you sort of say no at that point, obviously you can go, well, review that later. Otherwise, if you think, yeah, look, I think they are ready for that increased involvement in an activity. So the next thing you're going to go is thinking about prevention. So what are the things that we need to put in place to prevent those risks from being risks? So is it that we make sure that they've got properly fitting shoes so that they're unlikely to slip over with good grip? We want to make sure that they're well educated on how to be around the animals, understanding, you know, escape routes for animals and different things like that you know, really putting boundaries in place to ensure their safety. And then our final point that we think of, so it's really just three points, and our last one is plan, which is, you know, in the worst case scenario, if all of our prevention that we put in place doesn't work out and our child ends up injured, what are we going to do? What's that worst case scenario and how am I going to manage it? So, you know, where is the first aid kit? How do I communicate that we need to send for help? Have we got mobile reception? Do we need radios? you know, those sort of things. So you can also involve your children in this discussion as well. So really being able to give them ownership over, you know, those risk-taking behaviors and those risk-taking activities so that they can also start thinking about safety and start coming up with really good solutions. I think at this point, it's really worth recapping the triage of safety from Grace. So number one, pinpoint. So what are the risks in this environment? And then ask, is it really worth the risk? Number two is prevention, making sure everything is as safe as possible. And then three, plan. Plan for the worst. Make sure you've got a first aid kit, that you've got training, and you know what to do if something does go wrong. So that's good advice for a risk assessment for a child of any age. But now let's concentrate on babies and toddlers. This is an age group where obviously talking to them about risks is of little benefit. I asked Grace, what are the biggest risks for our little ones on farms? With the age group of toddlers, obviously babies are not as mobile, but once you've got toddlers, you've got mobile children with basically no ability to assess their environment for risks at all. And because of their natural curiosity, they are risk takers. So, you know, our issues with toddlers is mainly that sort of dart and run. You know, they will run off into an unsafe environment quicker than you will realize. So the challenges with them is that they can get themselves into livestock pens. They can get themselves around bodies of water. So really in this age group, I see a lot of issues mostly around drowning in, you know, bodies of water on farms for children, actually all the way up to four. But, you know, toddlers in particular under the age of two are at really high risk of either non-fatal or fatal drowning in dams or, you know, swimming pools if you've got them on the farm as well. And tragically, that's what happened to two-year-old Hunter Boyle. His mother, Ash Napolitano, is sharing Hunter's story to help prevent other children from drowning. He he was just a little ray of sunshine. He loved being the centre of attention. He had these beautiful big blue eyes, um, this mop of blonde hair, very, very, very cheeky. Loved to make people laugh and just wanted to befriend 
everyone, you know, like we'd be walking in the supermarket and he'd have to say hello to every single person we passed. Perfect little boy, just cheeky and a sweetheart, you know, like he's always active. He loved cuddles, but independent as well. He liked to do his own thing, which was usually getting into trouble, but just a perfect, perfect boy. Ash and her partner, Matt, had only just celebrated Hunter's second birthday a few weeks prior. But in August 2020, Hunter was being looked after at a farm just outside of Shepparton while his parents were at work for the day. And then about 10.30, I got a really horrific phone call stating that Hunter had fallen into the dam. So I immediately raced out there. Um, The ambulance uh, turned up. And they immediately jumped into action, you know, performing CPR, cutting off his clothes on the edge of the dam. I just remember um, like falling into a heap and just screaming that he's just a little boy and that you have to save him. A little bit of time went on and they continued to work on Hunter and then they rushed him to our hospital, GV Base Hospital, where the doctors and nurses performed CPR for about six hours you know, they were trying to warm him up. His core temperature was only 20 degrees when he arrived at the hospital. So obviously that is severe hypothermia. Um, And his little heart was unable to beat on its own. Eventually the lead doctor took us into a room and advised that all medical intervention had been exhausted. They had been trying to stabilise him uh, with the Piper unit so he could be flown to the Royal Children's Hospital for further treatment. But unfortunately, he he just wasn't able to be stabilised. You know, like the doctors and nurses, I will never forget how hard they worked on him. They, they would not stop and they would not give up until the very, very end. And we were given the choice to either remove the intubation tube and he would pass away within like a matter of seconds or leave the intubation tube in and have a few more minutes with him. But he would have to go to the coroner's with that tube down his throat because that's protocol, I guess. So we decided to remove the tube because it just felt like kind of a violation of his body to send him away with all that medical stuff down his throat. And we wanted to hold our baby and we wanted to kiss him and say goodbye. Matt and I just had like maybe 10 or 15 minutes on our own to say goodbye to him, which still feels unreal. Like, I mean, it's going to be three years this August that Hunter passed away and it still doesn't feel real. Mm. Um. Um, yeah, so he passed away in his daddy's arms and it was really, really hard. You know, like we drove home, our house at that time was about five minutes away from the hospital. And I just remember the two of us driving home in a quiet, empty car and just wondering what the hell had just happened. You know, like our lives were normal 12 hours prior. We were a normal little family, first-time parents, you know, with this bouncing, beautiful boy. And then all of a sudden, we it, that had all just been ripped away. The weeks that followed, Ash describes as a blur as she had to bury her baby boy. We had to pick out a coffin for our two-year-old boy. We had to pick out uh, the outfit that he was going to wear, the songs that were going to be played at his funeral, what photos we wanted. 
and amongst all of this, still in the middle of COVID. So we could only have 10 people in the church and all the rest of our family and friends and people we didn't know, a lot of members of the Shepherd and Police lined the streets out the front of the church, which was a really like humbling sight just to see all these people, people that didn't even know him come and show their respects. Ash is now dedicating much of her time to help prevent drowning deaths, founding the Hunter Boyle Children's Swim Program. Matt and I, we were sitting there, we were saying, we don't want him just to be a statistic. We want something, some kind of legacy to come out of Hunter's death. If we can't have him here with us, we're going to make sure his life meant something. So I ended up contacting KidSave. Our initial sort of plan was just to raise um, a bit of money and supply um, swimming lessons to 10 kids in the Shepparton region. I'm a youth worker and I've done a lot of work with young mums and their babies who, you know, a lot of the time are in some pretty not nice situations due to no fault of their own. And through my work with them, I saw that, you know, they're trying to pay rent and put food on the table. There's no money for anything else. There really isn't. They're living on the poverty line or below. So our idea with KidSafe was to give lessons to 10 children so that hopefully they don't continue to fall through the cracks. And from from that conversation, I began working with Alex in the ambassador program through KidSafe. And that is how the Hunter Boyle Children's Swim Program was born. So we have done so much in the last two years. Not only have we provided swimming lessons to around 13 children, but we also provide them and their parent or carer with all the equipment they need. So swimmers, goggles, towels, a little swimming bag, not only have we provided the swimming lessons, but we have also started the Hunter Boyle Scholarship Program. And to date, we have provided funding for four people in the community to complete their CPR and lifeguard training to become swim teachers. And if you're interested in donating, there is a link in the show notes. You can also find the Hunter Boyle Swim Program on Facebook and Instagram. I really want to thank Ash for sharing her story, as difficult as it must be, and we'll hear more from her in the upcoming episodes in this series. Actually, Sarah and Grace put me on to her. They said I needed to talk to this amazing woman who is doing big things in her community to help prevent drownings. And you know, it's not just dams on farms that are dangerous for toddlers. Here's Sarah Duncanson. Dams are certainly one of the leading causes of drownings on farms. However, when you think about a farming property, Any body of water is a danger for a child. So we think of troughs, we think of pet bowls, deep puddles. We've had a lot of rain recently. There's a lot of deep puddles and bodies of water lying around. Children have large heads and small bodies when they're toddlers, and so they're unbalanced. And when they fall, they fall forwards and then they get stuck. So if they fall into a bucket, they struggle to be able to get themselves out. So lots of bodies of water lying around your property, even around your home, that doesn't necessarily happen all year round. What can someone do to help prevent drowning from happening in the first place? 
But when we're thinking about that toddler age group, our main thing with them is that we're going to have to keep them within arm's reach at all times. So if we are around a water area with our children, if we're around the dam, we want to make sure that we're always taking them with us when we leave that water area. If we are supervising them at that water area, we need to be actively supervising. So this means that we need to be looking at them at all time. We can't be focusing our attention, you know, on our mobile phones. We can't be focusing our attention, you know, on other adults. I know sometimes it can become really easy to become, you know, really lost in conversation with another adult. And sometimes during that, we're not able to actively supervise our children in those bodies of water. So it's really important. And one of the things that I do with my husband when I've got my kids in the water is we will uh, sort of hand over because he's a nurse as well. So I'll sort of say to him, I'm going to do something. So you are in charge of supervising the children. And I like verbalize that. So somebody knows at all times that they are responsible for supervising my children. And likewise, if you're going to hand that over to, you know, a friend or a family member, you know, don't say things like, oh, can someone just watch my kids? I'm going to the toilet, like direct that at a specific person, you know, so you might say, hey, Sarah, I'm going to go to the toilet. Can I get you to watch my three while I go so that Sarah knows that I've specifically asked her to do it and she's responsible for them rather than us asking, you know, a large group of people who therefore nobody takes responsibility. Other things that we can do is just making sure that we're really clear on where our safe play space is for children on the farm. And we want to make sure that that's away from bodies of water. Ideally, you've got that fenced off as well. And then the other thing that we can do is water familiarization lessons. So this is where we get them in swimming lessons really early on so that they can know what they need to do with their bodies if they do fall into water to ensure that they can put themselves into a safe position and still be able to get out and ask for help or put their bodies into a way that means that they're not face down and things like that. So being able to have access to swimming lessons is another good way that we can help prevent drowning deaths. Other leading on-farm dangers for toddlers are falls and accidental poisonings. Here's Sarah. So we will talk about this a little bit more in the next age group, but certainly falls are a big one for children. And when we think about the farming environment, there are so many things that our children, once they start to walk and become mobile, they very quickly learn how to climb. And there are many things on farms and around properties where children can climb onto. So when we think of things around the farm, we think of hay bales or haystacks, sheds, machinery and items in sheds that children can climb up onto. And this is especially pertinent when they have older siblings who they want to follow and copy. So often we see that the child who has fallen and sustained quite a severe injury has older siblings or older cousins who they like to mimic. The other one that we see, and it's really pertinent to farming life, is accidental poisonings. So not only are we talking about inside the house here, but especially outside the house in garden sheds and farming sheds sheds. There is a lot of poisons, a lot of chemicals that children can get into. And some of those poisons don't necessarily smell offensive for children. They actually like the smell of them. So they're drawn to them. We also have to be really mindful of the fact that sometimes we decant poisons into other containers that look really enticing to kids. So if you're putting them into a juice bottle or into a soda bottle, that to a child looks really enticing. They don't know that that equals drink and it's usually a delicious drink. I think sometimes we underestimate our own toddler's abilities to sort of open things or start things, you know, like they've got not a lot of cognitive ability, but wow, can they like get into something when they want to? 
Oh, you're absolutely oh, yeah. right. And my two-year-old is very, very apt at opening childproof medications. He has been watching us push down and turn on the Nurofen and the Panadol bottles and, uh, <laughs> yeah, is very, very skilled at doing so. So, yes, never underestimate your child's abilities and never underestimate what they're watching. So when they're seeing you open up that multivitamin bottle they watching you push down and turn around and as soon as they're able to climb up they will do the same thing and whether that's inside or whether that's in the shed and they're watching you mix farm chemicals or deal with chemicals as soon as they're able to get up on that bench they will do the same thing and then we have that risk of fall so we've now got the climbing and we've got the accidental poisoning so yeah they're the two of the other main causes of injury to children across all age groups, but certainly in that younger age group. And then finally, the other thing that we see across all age groups, not as much in the younger toddlers because they don't have the ability to drive machinery themselves, but certainly motor vehicle accidents. And in this age group, we unfortunately see runovers with young children because they're very difficult to see. They they sit in blind spots very easily. So when we're reversing or when we're moving machinery, making sure that our, our, we've actually visually seen where our children are. And this happened to me the other day. I was driving a trailer around our property and my two two-year-old normally sits on the steps and never moves. And I had just in the heat of the moment said to him, come down the steps and jump in the car. And I jumped in the car. And just before I went to go, I thought, I just remembered that I've told him to come down those steps. I can't see him on the steps and he's not in the car. Um, It was just, he was still on the steps. He was just out of sight. But having those safety measures put in place that actually, no, you don't move from the steps until I physically bring you down so I know where you are or you are inside the door. So we always say to our children, when a car is moving, you have to be on a fence or inside near a door. And we have to visually see them before we push that accelerator. So certainly motor vehicle accidents in that sense, but also children being unrestrained in farm vehicles is another big one as well. It's very easy to pop them on the front seat while you just go up and check the sheep or when you have to go up and lock a gate, but it's that time where you hit that pothole or when you lose control and that child's unrestrained and causes severe injuries, sometimes fatal. Yeah. I mean, it always sort of happens in an instant really, doesn't it? I remember when my son was three and he was excited because he could see dad was coming home and he was outside playing and I was inside, but I've got lots of windows and I can watch them. And I was on the phone to someone and I just watched him run like side by side with a car. And I knew he was going to go behind the car. I just, I just knew it. So I just dropped the phone and started running inside the house parallel to try and beat my son. And I did to get to him before he got behind the car, just in case the car, you know, my husband wouldn't see him and then the car could reverse. And it's just those moments that you just catch yourself and you think, God, that could really go the other way. Yeah. I was just going to say like those near misses, like we experience them as well. Like, I just want to say that you know, despite all of our background and our knowledge and things like that, we still have days where we're like, oh, that was a near miss and we get distracted and, you know, our children take risks and those sort of things. Like we definitely acknowledge that accidents do happen. We're just, you know, obviously trying to put as many things in place to make it less likely that they're going to happen. 
And that's it for our first episode of our Farm Child Safety Series. In the next episode with Sarah and Grace from Peds Education, we will look specifically at school-aged children from 5 to 14 years old. We also get some more detailed advice about what to do if your child is badly injured and you're the only one around. You know, do you wait for an ambulance or drive in yourself? We also discuss how to cope with feeling overwhelmed when it comes to child safety on farm, that anxiety that you can feel about letting your kid do anything. That episode comes out next week. And a reminder, if anything in this episode has caused you distress, please call Lifeline on 13 11 44 or Beyond Blue 1300 22 46 36. I'd like to thank our guests, Sarah Duncanson and Grace Larson, the directors of PEDS. And thank you again to Ash Napolitano for bravely sharing her story. All the resources mentioned in this episode are linked in the show notes. This series is a collaboration with PEDS. If you're interested in collaborating or sponsoring an episode of Ducks on the Pond, then our contact info is in the show notes. We would love to hear from you. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. I'm Kirsten Diprose. Thanks for listening and I'll catch you soon.